Well, it's so good to see all of you. Thank you for coming. In his book, Loving God, Charles Colson tells the story of Boris Kornfeld. He's a Jewish-Russian doctor who in the 1950s was in a Soviet prison camp. Most probably at that time, he was a supporter of communism. This was post-revolutionary Russia, and in order for him to receive the level of education he had, he would have been a supporter of the state. But not much else is known about him, not much about his background or even the crime he committed, other than whatever he did, it was deemed against the political state. Colson writes, ironically, a few years behind barbed wire was a good cure for communism. The senseless brutality, the waste of lives, the trivialities called criminal charges made men like him doubt the glories of the system. Stripped of all past associations, thoughtful men like Kornfeld found themselves reevaluating earlier beliefs. So it was that this Russian doctor abandoned all of his socialist ideals. In fact, he went further than that. Boris Kornfeld became a Christian. In prison, he enjoyed some privileges due to his medical training, and he worked in the prison hospital. Food was scarce, and many patients died of malnutrition. One day, he witnessed a hospital orderly eating the food that was supposed to go to one of the patients. He had seen this many times in the past, but now it was too much for the doctor. You see, he was transforming. He reported the orderly to the commandant, and now he was a stoolie in the camp, so he had effectively signed his death warrant. As a result of this, he decided to stay in the hospital and work with his patients. And one night, he confessed to one of the patients this, quote, on the whole, you know, I become convinced that there is no punishment that comes to us in this life on earth which is undeserved. But if you go over your life with a fine-tooth comb and ponder it really deeply, you're always going to be able to find and hunt down that transgression of yours, which is now the reason you're receiving the blow that you're receiving. What a confession. He went from persecuted Jew to believing we get what we deserve. In effect, that night, Kornfeld declared what scripture reveals. We are guilty. And that's why we're looking this week at atonement through sacrifice. It's necessary because of this truth. Before God, all humanity is guilty. First, we bear the imputed guilt of our first father, Abraham. Excuse me, uh, excuse me, Adam. His guilt has been imputed on all humanity. But as Kornfeld so rightly stated, so also for our own transgressions. Now, I realize this is a bold statement, but I believe I can order, offer proof. Physical death. Our death is the consequence of our guilt before God. I know this is not a popular truth or topic, but tonight I'm asking you to allow me to lay this out not from our perspective, but from God's perspective as scripture reveals it to us. You see, not only do we share the problem of death, we have no power within ourselves to solve our problem. Scripture further reveals that the one who can solve our problem is the very one we have offended. 
So we, if we accept this, this week in our study, then atonement through sacrifice can only be understood or interpreted as God's provision of grace to us. Now, before we dig into this, I know you've done some pre-work, and I know you put some time this week into this lesson. So I'll for, take the next 15 minutes and ask yourself these questions. What challenged you as you did your pre-work this week? Did anything surprise you? Were you impacted by anything that you saw in the scriptures or your questions? Now, table leaders, on your discussion guide, there are some questions and they're only suggestions. I'm hoping that you take this time to really share with your table some of the things that you saw this week through the Holy Spirit, and then we'll talk about atonement through sacrifice. Thank you. Well, I know it, it's a sacrifice of time to do your pre-work. So I hope that your table discussions were rich, and I hope that you learned something uh, from your partners tonight. We're going to start with holiness. If I were to ask you, how would you define holiness? What would you say? Set apart. Anyone else? Right living. Right living. Thank you. Spiritually clean. These are excellent. Anyone else? Great job. Holiness has to do with separateness. It has to do with uniqueness and a setting apart. Since there's no other being like God, and he is utterly holy, God alone is majestic in holiness. 1 Samuel 2.2 states it beautifully. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. In scripture, holy has to do primarily with God's separating from the world that which he chooses to devote to himself. And that's every one of you in this room. In the Old Testament, okay, God choosing or separating from the world that which he chooses to devote to himself. Thank you for asking. In the Old Testament, as God's redemptive plan unfolds, the holy ones became associated with the character of God's separating people conforming to his revealed law. That's how they were set apart, by the law, by the Sabbath, in the Old Covenant. But here's the thing. God's perfect holiness, the complete perfection of his attributes, such as his power and his goodness, is humbling and even terrifying when revealed to weak and sinful people. Never thought of it that way. But you know what? Good old Peter, we can count on him to always demonstrate human nature, right? So take a look at what happens in this episode. Stepping onto one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out to where it is deeper and let down your nets, and you will catch many fish. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night and didn't catch a thing, but if you say so, we'll try again. And this time, their nets were so full they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, 
and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. See, this leads to the key question in Leviticus. How can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? Now, remember, the redemptive story reveals God's motivation. He wants to dwell with his people. That was the central idea of our last lesson, wasn't it? God dwells with his people. Over a quarter of the book of Exodus is devoted to the tabernacle. That's a lot of biblical real estate to devote to just one topic. God is setting up a sacred place, the tabernacle, which, by the way, tabernacle means to dwell, setting up the sacred place in which he will dwell with his people. Exodus ends with the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, and Leviticus begins with the sacrifices and offerings described so that his people can dwell with him. Now, note this. In the book of Leviticus, the Israelites are camped around Mount Sinai for about a year. In the sacrificial system, we're going to look at this tonight. And yes, it's very detailed. Don't worry about walking out of here knowing the details. Get a sense of what it meant to be right before God in the Old Testament. So first, let's take a look at an overview of what's going on. God allows the animal to die in place of the guilty person. Life is in the blood. Now, I didn't know this until I did this lesson. Even if the sin is unintentional, it is still an offense. God requires the best of the flock because sacrifice has to cost something. That's the nature of sacrifice. And the priest mediates between God and the people. These are the main things we're going to look at. Now we're going to take a look at the five sacrifices listed in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. The first one is the whole burnt offering. It's in Leviticus 1. Now here again, I have to confess to you, I didn't know this. I didn't know any of the sacrifices were voluntary. This one is. And a bull, a lamb, a goat, a turtle dove, a pigeon, all could be sacrificed as long as they were out without defect. And what was the purpose of this basic worship? The second sacrifice was the great, yes? How frequently did that happen? Uh, it could happen. We, we even see before the sacrificial system was set up, you'll even see Abraham do this, Jacob do this. There were just times that they were able to go before the Lord and do this and offer a general offering. This is not the Day of Atonement. This could be done more frequently. Yes. Yes. It's a great question, and just so you know, we're going to, after we talk about these, we, get, we, we are going to look at the Day of Atonement. It's that important. Gr no, don't be. It's a great question. Thank you so much. The grain offering, also known as the meal offering, is in Leviticus 2. It, too, was voluntary. It was the only non-animal offering, which means there was no blood, so it could not atone for sin. It was a gift of gratitude and worship to God for the harvest. The third one is the peace offering, also known as the fellowship offering. 
This is in Leviticus 3. The third one is voluntary. It worshiped God around a shared meal at the Lord's table, something we do once a month in our church. Now, parts of the offering went to God, part to the priest, and of course, the rest went to the worshiper and the guests because it was about sharing a meal. And in this sacrifice, the animals could vary. So it's not until we get to the fourth sacrifice that we begin to see what I understood as the sin or the guilt offerings. The fourth sacrifice is the sin offering, and it's in Leviticus 4 through 5.13. This was mandatory. Every Israelite was required to make the sin offering to cover any unintentional violations of God's law. This included the priest, the whole community, any of the leaders or the commoners. And then we take a look at the fifth one, which is the guilt offering or the trespass offering. This too was mandatory. And the purpose was to look beyond one sin to the damage it had caused. Sin hurts people. So the worshiper brought three things. A male sheep to be offered to God, funds or goods to make restitution, and I think the IRS got this from the Old Testament, a 20% penalty added to the restitution. Because think about this. When one person causes harm to another, forgiveness was necessary to heal the relational breach, but restitution was necessary to cover the financial breach. Now, there were some intentional sins to which none of these sacrifices could cover, and death was the penalty. We're going to go into the Day of Atonement next. But before we do, I want to talk about biblical structure. You know, if, if I want to make a point, like if you were to look at my notes, I have some things that are bolded, some things that are capitalized, some it's red ink, some it's blue ink, all kinds of fonts to make me realize, stop here, this is important. The biblical writers did not have that. They used different things for emphasis. They used repetition. If you see repetition in the Bible, pay attention. And like I said, some topics take many chapters of a book. Pay attention. But they used something else called structure. Structure was used for emphasis. And a central position was of great importance. So let's take a look at this chart. I'll explain it, and it will give you some idea of how important the Day of Atonement is in the Old Testament. Let's look at the pyramid first, or the, or the triangle. The book of Leviticus is the center of the Pentateuch, or the Torah. Pentateuch means five scrolls. Torah means law, and they refer to the same five books. These are the foundational books of the entire Old Testament. These books are bookended first by Genesis, which means beginnings, and then ended by Deuteronomy, which was the preparation for the Israelites to enter the Promised Land. These books take us from one sacred space, which is the garden, to another, the Promised Land. You're going to see through the story, God continues to create these sacred spaces, and humans continue to violate them. Now, the three books in between Genesis and Deuteronomy are Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. 
and they show the journey from slavery from Egypt to the promised land. Leviticus is in the center of the center books. It's also called a chiasm. This is a literary structure. And you'll find that many commentators will point out these chiasms to bring attention. So what is a chiasm? Well, it takes a look, look at the entire book of, of, in this case, Leviticus, and think of it this way. The beginning chapters and the ending chapters have an A theme. Then they move in to a B theme. Then they move in to a C theme. And then what happens is you hit the center, the bullseye. So the pyramid's going to help us here. Okay? If we go up to the second level of the pyramid, you'll see sanctuary laws. In reading the book of Leviticus, 1 through 7, the beginning, and chapters 23 through 27, the end, deal with sanctuary laws. As you continue reading chapters 8 through 10, book it ended by 21 through 22, deal with the priestly laws. We go up one more step because we're getting closer to the center. Chapters 11 through 15 and chapters 17 through 20 deal with personal laws. And then right there, chapter 16, what do we have? The Day of Atonement. The center of the Torah is Leviticus, and the center of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. This structure is telling us this is important. Now, before we actually go into this day, we have to look at some definitions. Words that we typically don't use, but they're worth looking because they'll be coming through most of tonight. The first one is expiation. I don't know who thinks these things up, but expiation. It's a payment of what is owed. Remember, all redemption revolves paying a debt to secure a freedom. That's expiation. Propitiation, think of it as appeasement. It's pacifying the offended party. Now, Here's an example of expiation. Remember the guilt offering? That was the offering in which you had to make restitution plus 20%? That's an expiation. So what's a propitiation? Well, think of either the whole burnt offering or the sin offering. What happens here? The worshiper is identified with the animal being sacrificed. The blood, which represents life, is from the animal and is presented as a substitute for the worshiper. The animal is slain and its parts are presented to God in a ceremony, thereby propitiating or appeasing the Lord and it averts his wrath from the worshiper. We do not bear the wrath of God. He graciously allows the substitute to bear it. He is appeased through these sacrifices. And that's why I say our topic tonight, atonement through sacrifice, can only be understood or interpreted as God's provision of grace to us. How, how do you understand the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur is how we know it today? When you hear that, what do you think is happening? Any ideas? Confession. Confession, thank you. Anyone else? Yeah. 
the day they can be close to God by sending the priest into the Holy of Holies? Excellent answers. Yes. We're going to look at the components of the Day of Atonement, which is Leviticus 16. And we're going to start with the first verse. Here's what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's, the first high priest, two sons who died when they burned a different kind of fire than the Lord had commanded. Now, this actually occurs in Leviticus 10. They present the wrong kind of fire, and they are consumed by it. But notice the Lord begins his instructions to Moses by recalling the event. Here we have repetition. The Lord wants him to pay attention. This matters. In Leviticus 2, the Lord said to Moses, Warn your brother Aaron, the high priest, not to enter the most holy place behind the inner curtain whenever he chooses. The penalty for this intrusion is death. For the ark's cover, the place of atonement is there, and I myself am present in the cloud over the atonement cover. So in these first two verses alone, here's what we see. Timing and approach matter to God. He is specific. Now, these first two verses also talk about the high priest or the human high priest. Let's do a little review. Yes? After timing and approach. Yes. Correct. Yes, this, this atonement day is very, very specific. Thank you. Great question. So let's take a look and review the priestly, uh, the Levitical high priestly line. The first one was Aaron. In Exodus, when Moses ascended the mountain, he was in God's presence, and God was giving him the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what the people were doing? Beautiful, making the golden calf. Who led the project? Aaron. Aaron, yes. And what else did Aaron do? He built something else besides the calf. It was, say it again? The altar. The altar. That's the first high priest. Now, Aaron's direct heirs are his sons, Nadab and Abihu. And we've already learned they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord and they died by that fire. This is the start of the human high priestly line. Great start, isn't it? So in the Day of Atonement ceremony, I found this to be amazing. Throughout the year, all the sacrifices offered by the worshipers for sin and impurity at the sanctuary meant that the sanctuary itself needed periodic cleansing. Not just the people, but the place in order for the Holy Lord to continue to reside there. In other words, due to the excessive contact with human faults, the sanctuary could become polluted. So he wasn't going to reside till not just the people, but the place was cleansed. This occurred, as you already have said, once a year on the 10th day of the seventh month, which is early fall. 
and I believe Yom Kippur happens around September. The high priest and only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies or the inner sanctuary. And it was stated only on that one day. He was required to fully bathe. Just washing his hands was not enough. And then he had to be dressed in pure linen garments representing purity. Now, the ceremony begins with the high priest offering a bull as a sin offering for himself and his family, the first offering. Then he burns incense before the mercy seat in the inner sanctuary to provide a shield of smoke protecting him from God's lethally glorious presence. What do I mean by that? Think about this. Bible Project does a lot of videos, and they have a great one on holiness, and their illustration is, I think, perfect for this. Think of the sun, S-U-N. The sun brings light, warmth, energy. It's necessary for our life. It's necessary for our food source, both vegetation and animal. But if a human being got too close to the sun, that proximity was just too near, we would be destroyed. Think of God's holiness with an unholy person, the same thing. As good as God is, sinful man cannot get that close to God without it being lethal. So the smoke was a way of protecting the high priest from the God's lethally glorious presence. Then he would sprinkle the bull's blood on and in front of the mercy seat. Then he would cast lots over two goats. One was offered as a sin offering. The other was presented alive as the scapegoat. The blood of the goat and the bull which were sacrificed were mixed and applied to the horns of the altar to make atonement for the place, for the sanctuary. The high priest confessed all the people's sins over the head of the live goat, which was led away and released in the wilderness. One of the commentators I read referred to the scapegoat as the garbage truck. Now, following the ceremony, the high priest bathed again, and then he put on his usual garments. He then offered a burnt offering for himself and the people, which is the basic worship offering. The bodies of the bull and the goat used in that day's ritual were burnt outside the camp. Now, while the high priest was cleansing the sanctuary and the camp on their behalf, what were the Israelites doing? Well, on this day, they fasted, self-denial, and they rested from their work. They went into a Sabbath rest. So how does all this work out? Well, in Leviticus 16.30, on this day, atonement will be made for you, and you will be cleansed from all your sins in the Lord's presence. It ends with success. Now, the Lord will give closing instructions to Moses. This is 16.32-34. In future generations, the atonement ceremony will be performed by the anointed high priest who serves in the place of his ancestor Aaron. God is providing succession. 
He will put on his holy linen garments, and he will make atonement for the most holy place, the tabernacle, the altar, the priest, and the entire community. This is a permanent law for you to make atonement for the Israelites once each year. Moses followed all of these instructions that the Lord had given him. Chapter 16 ends with both success and obedience. Okay, since you've last talked, we've had a lot of rules, haven't we? So I have another table discussion. You're with your peers, so it's a safe place. So I'd like to ask you, do you think that the laws and ceremonies described in Leviticus are over the top? If yes, why do you feel that way? If no, why not? Now imagine if the book of Leviticus is your only context for understanding God's nature and character. What's your assessment of them? So take about 10 minutes with your table and ponder these questions, and, I, and we're going to share some of our answers. Thank you. Thank you so much. Is anyone willing to share their assessment of God based on this? Safe place. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Because, you know, part of the Academy's mission is to help us become disciples of other people. What do you think they're thinking? Yes. Great point. Thank you for your candor. Appreciate it. Anyone else? Yes. Yes, thank you for saying that. That's why I started. I hope you're just getting a sense of this, and don't worry about all the details, but just get the sense of what it was. Thank you. Great point. Anyone else? Overwhelming. And did you ever think of the people whose job was to clean up after the sacrifices? Somebody had to do that. Yes. Great point. Yes. Yes. Indeed, a lot easier. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being honest. Thank you so much. Well, good news, because now we're going to be moving into the New Testament, and we're going to talk about Hebrews. And thank you all for your answers. I believe our assigned reading in Hebrews this week, chapters 9 and 10, clearly demonstrated Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Great job. And it's easy to read. So I want to explore a few other things that Hebrew reveals. First, we're going to take a look at Hebrews 1, verse 3, a beautiful verse. The sun reflects God's own glory, and everything about him 
represents God exactly. He sustains the universe by the mighty power of his command. And after he died to cleanse us from the stain of sin, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God of heaven. Everything about him represents God exactly. So let's go back to our problem. Because of our guilt, we will die. But in spite of this, God still loves us perfectly. But God's attribute of perfect justice demands both expiation and acceptable payment. And remember, his wrath is perfectly justified. So it demands propitiation to be appeased. Here's the thing. God does not act outside of or in contradiction to his character. Now, perhaps this might be a question people might ask. If God is the only offended party and he's also all-powerful, then can God do whatever he wants to do? So then why doesn't God just forgive everybody? It's a fair question. And you know, this question may not be answered definitively by philosophical speculation. But you know what? It has been settled by theological revelation. You see, what we learn from this book, God does not act outside of or in contradiction to his character. Something has to be done. And in God's magnanimous grace, he resolves our problem because there is a place where perfect justice and perfect love intersect. One attribute does not overtake or lessen the other attribute at the cross. At the cross, perfect love and justice are held in perfect tension because of whom was on that cross. God does not dilute justice by not requiring a penalty. He does require a penalty, but he also takes on the penalty. At the cross, God is on full display. And the Gospel of Mark records an unexpected declaration of Jesus' identity as the Son of God, the moment of his death. And here's the thing. The one making the declaration is not one of the apostles, nor is this person a disciple, nor is this person even an Israelite, but a common Roman soldier who witnessed the crucifixion. And here's what Mark writes. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. When the Roman officer who had stood facing him saw how he had died, he explained, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. You see, everything about him represents God exactly. Now here's the second thing we see in the New Testament. The reason our access to God is not limited as it was in the Old Testament is because our status from guilty 
to righteous, right with God, has changed because we are in Christ. Look what Paul writes in Romans. For if by one trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? This is so important, Paul repeats it. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus obeyed his father all the way to the cross. Now, I submit to you, even though we just looked at this onerous Old Testament sacrificial system, the most radical thing I said tonight was the Romans passage. And I'll tell you why I say that. The Old Testament sacrificial system makes sense intuitively. Think about this. If I've injured someone, then I need to make restitution. That was the Old Testament covenant. If I'm guilty, then I need to pay a price to sacrifice or, or uh, do a sentence. That's the Old Testament sacrifice. And if I happen to be an Old Testament Israelite and my community of faith recognizes our guilt, once a year, our official representative will perform sacrificial rites and ceremonies while we fast and abstain. That makes sense. We're recognizing our guilt, and we're dealing with it. But here, our status changes from guilty to righteous. We become right with God by receiving a gift. This is a radical shift in human thought. And as we think about our role as disciple makers and we share our faith, let's recognize that maybe others are not ready to accept something as radical as this. So our disciple making sometimes requires that we ask the Holy Spirit to prepare the hearts of those to receive something like this, a gift. You know, you may have harmed me and even formed a, 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 committed a crime against me. And I might say to you, that's okay. I, I still forgive you. And based on our relationship, I still love you. But how many people will say beyond that, oh, oh, I think I'll go to prison for you. That's what our Lord has done here. Hard to accept. Now, the third thing about Hebrews. I love this. Hebrews, Hebrews confirms what the Gospels proclaim and the Old Testament anticipates. That's a mouthful, so let's break it down. The Old Testament anticipated God's Messiah. The Gospels declared Jesus is the Messiah, and Hebrews confirms that fact. There is only one way to God, to eternal life, and therefore Jesus can be characterized as, now wait for it, here it comes, exclusive. The current perception of exclusive, the current perception of this word is negative. It has become a trigger word. No one wants to be seen as ex exclusive because it's a negative connotation. But think about this. Think about this. 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the earth, guess what the big problem was with everybody? He was too inclusive. He would sit with the woman in broad daylight who what? Had many husbands and, oh my gosh, was not only Jewish but also Gentile. 
He would touch those that had disease. He would eat with taxpayers, maybe, maybe still today there'd be a problem, and he would also eat with sinners. He was too inclusive. But you know what exclusive is today? It just happens to be the latest obstacle to Jesus. Yet, in spite of all this, our mission as his church, I'll say it again, is to make disciples. It hasn't changed. The way to eternal life hasn't changed. And what has changed today only is the perception of the word exclusive. Now, is anybody in here in marketing or sales? Anybody? Well, you know what? Part of your sales training, or it used to be, is that you anticipate objections and you're ready to overcome them. So I think it's time for a practical table discussion. And here's the scenario. You have a good longtime friend who knows you are a Christian because you live out your faith well. Your friend happens to be a nun, N-O-N-E. Faith is not a big factor because, you know, they live a good life and that's how they understand morality and that's how they understand salvation. But you know what? Your friend approaches you and they ask, I know your faith is, faith is important to you, but I don't understand how someone as intelligent and as tolerant as you are can still believe there's only one way to God. See, I want to believe what you believe, but do I have to believe that? So here's the thing. Your friend's not looking to belittle you or they're not, they're looking, for they're not looking for debate. They're actually seeking so the good news is you have 10 minutes to resolve that for your friend. And then we'll come back and talk about it. Thank you. Yes. N-O-N-E. Someone has no belief in anything other than, you know, I'm good and that type of thing. Yes. It's a great question. If you had it, somebody else did. Thank you. I heard some great discussion. Does anybody want to share what you talked about at your tables to overcome this current obstacle to the gospel? Anyone want to share? And, and, and your answers are going to help each other. They're going to be synergistic. Any thoughts? Yes. Yeah, can I tell you something? That was really clever. I have never heard anybody present it that way. Wow. He presented either you're perfect in your own uh, conduct and can obey the law fully, or you recognize that you're not perfect and you need someone. And that was very clever. So you don't come back with the only one way. You offer the option. Are you in sales? Beware. Thank you. I, I have never heard an answer like that. That was excellent. Like I said, we're all going to benefit. Thank you. Anyone else?
you shouldn't try to sell them. And they're not, they're not selling space, you know? They're trying mm. to get their, their um, shoes in front of their faces. Like, you can answer their questions, but they'll be, yeah, like, we, we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we said so. Um, but really, it's like, well, here, here's my story, and, like, here's, here's why I believe so. Like, you should explore these things and chase this thing that you're asking, and I think you'll end up Excellent. The idea of relationship and talking, telling your story, that, and your story has value. Thank you. Excellent. These are great answers. Anyone else? Yes, sir. It's kind of like also, you know, you, you can ask a question back. Um, how do you know? That, I mean, you can pick one. How do you know you're going to get it right? This, this isn't a crapshoot. I mean, you're playing with your life. Yes. So you've got to find a way to do it right. Yes. And you know what Daniel's saying? Who used the technique of asking questions? Jesus. It's another great technique. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes. We were talking about just getting really simple and just say, okay, well, are you looking for religion? Yes. No. Okay. You're looking for a religion. Well, let's look at some of the all of the world religions. All but Christianity makes you do. You have to do to get. You have to in front of this statue. You have to pray at these certain times. You have to do, 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 and get. Christianity doesn't make you do. You just receive. So, if you're going to consider a religion, which one would you rather? Do or receive? Okay, do you want to receive? Okay. Then if they want to say, yeah, but Christianity has all of these rules, you still have to do things. Well, no, it's a change of Well done. Yeah, these, are, these are great answers. I'm so glad I got rid of my example. Yours are so much better. Anyone else? Excellent. These are excellent. I'm, I'm glad I'm here tonight. Anyone else? Holy Spirit tugging at anybody? I've asked this question a lot. Your answers are excellent. They're different than any other ones I've heard. Great, great job. Thank you for blessing me. No question about it. They're wonderful. Because what you've all said and have come to understand, that the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with keeping people away from God. It has everything to do with showing people the way to God. He does not reject us. He allows us to reject him. Does that even sound exclusive? Not at all, right? So what we're doing and what you have done in your answers is 
You're taking back the language, and you're doing it with wisdom and intact. And you know why that's important? Because you know whom you represent. Well done. Great representation of the king in your answers. So our mission continues regardless of the current challenges, and we can do this in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you sure showed that tonight. You know, sometimes in our insistence and in wanting options in our way, we can run the risk of missing our desired destination. And you all heard that tonight. Well done. So I want to make a last point on the exclusiveness because it really gives us a beautiful picture of what really is going on. Revelation 7-9, John the Apostle sees this, a picture of heaven. And after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. That is a picture of heaven. What do you hear? Inclusion or exclusion? Inclusion. There you go. We answer the cry of today. Scripture and our Lord and our God has already anticipated it and resolved it for us. In Christ, we see this. Now, before we leave Leviticus and head into Numbers, which you saw in Numbers 14 this week, I wanted to say one more thing. Leviticus really is about the Old Testament law. So let's think a little bit about the law, bigger than the sacrificial system, the whole idea of the book of Leviticus. And there's a commentator by the name of Daniel Block, and he wrote a commentary on Deuteronomy. And he talks a little bit about the law. And again, thanks to this course, I've learned something about the law that I had never thought about before, and I'd like to share it. Into the dark world, the law of Moses shines its beacon of glory and grace. Israel's God has revealed himself. Israel has declared, or God has declared, the boundaries of acceptable and unacceptable conduct and Israel's God has provided a way of forgiveness, which actually solves the human problem of sin. Now, Moses. Moses recognizes that Israel has an extraordinary privilege because God himself has revealed his will to them. Don't we all want that? Lord, please reveal your will to us. God has done that. Now, here's the part that I never thought about. But he also declares the nation's missionary function. Well before the Great Commission, God's declaring the missionary function. And listen to this. In the plan of God, through the obedience of his people, they would demonstrate their greatness to all the nations and so fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham centuries ago. And what was that promise? All nations will be blessed through you. Their obedience would have been a light to our God. Now, Paul, leave it to Paul, in 2 Corinthians 3 3 will say it this way Israel was to be a letter from God to the world, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the human hearts. Now, sadly, we know the nation as a whole did fail this mission, but it wasn't because of the law. This doesn't negate either God's grace or the power of the law. Remember, God gave us the law. He established it, so it's good. 
we know that the law was fulfilled through Christ from Matthew 5. See, the failure of this was not the law that God gave, but it simply testifies to the hardness of the human heart. Now, like Israel, we the church have been given a mission. Have I made that point tonight? Our charge given to us by Jesus is that great commission, go and make disciples. So Paul will further write in 2 Corinthians, but this time to the Christians. What this means is that those who become Christians become new persons. They are not the same anymore. The old life is gone, the new has begun. But he continues. All this newness is life from God who brought us back to himself through what Christ did. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. This is a wonderful message. It's, we're to tell it to others. We are Christ's ambassadors. So just like I saw by looking at the redemptive story, something new, something new in the purpose of the law, You've been studying this uh, story for the past couple of weeks. You've been through the time of creation. You've been through the time of Abraham, and now you're in Sinai. So my question is, have you learned anything new? Has something stood out to you in all your time of study? Anybody want to share? Any thoughts? Mm. Great. God uses people even when they're not holy and righteous. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. That's a great point. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Thank you. How terribly serious sin is when seen from God's perspective. Thank you. Anyone else? Again, great answers. Any tugging? Yes. Great point, and you're right. I mean, that perspective that we have, thinking about it, thank you. That's a great, it's, not, it's not how it was supposed to be. Excellent. 
and the blood was the visual for that. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Thank you. The law makes us realize our vulnerability and our need for Christ once we realize how vulnerable we really are. Thank you. These are great. Anyone else? Well, you've learned that already. You are ahead of the game. When you realize that when we ever we interfere and try to help with God's will, because think about it. What happened with Abraham and Hagar wasn't in God's will, but the plan worked. So, so much for thinking the plan working is God's will. So good that you know that. These are great. Anyone else? Mm, the stubbornness of our hearts and the patience of God. Thank you. Well, thank you. These were wonderful uh, that you've gotten us from the redemptive story, and it's going to continue. Thank you so much for sharing. Let's take a look at the book of Numbers in the chapter that we looked at this week. After the Israelites have camped at Mount Sinai for the year, they're ready to move on. We're going from the events of Leviticus to Numbers. Now, although the book of Numbers is so named because it begins with a counting of the people or a census, and it ends with a counting of the people, another census, the Hebrew Bible calls the book in the wilderness, which is a more accurate description because that's where they are, in the wilderness. Now, this week we looked at chapter 14, and at this point, the slow to anger God is now angry. The persistent lack of trust on the part of the Israelites is the problem. Regardless of God's revelation to them and his miraculous signs on their behalf, this was the generation that was born into slavery, and now they're out of slavery because of God's intervention with the plagues. They still continue to grumble and complain, and it has been consistent and persistent. More than once, they say they want to return to Egypt. More than once. And they rebel against God's chosen leaders, against Moses and Aaron. And they give glory for their release from slavery to a metal calf, which they themselves have built. 
This time the problem is 10 of the 12 men who have been chosen to scout out the promised land return from the land and spread fear among the people. The obstacles are too great, they say. The inhabitants are too big and too strong, they say. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, look to God and not the circumstances, but the people won't listen to them. So God renders judgment and sends a plague to destroy them. But Moses, the intercessor, will intercede and the Lord relents. So God will not kill all the people through the plague. Instead, they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the older generation dies. Think about it. God grants their desires. They've been telling them all along, we don't want to move forward with you. They've been telling them all along, we don't want to realize your promises. So he turns them back. Now, after this generation has died, there's a census of the younger generation. And where are they? They're on the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River, right across from Jericho. It's here on these plains that Moses will prepare this generation to enter the promised land. The redemptive story will continue in Deuteronomy. Deutero means second. Nami is Greek namus, meaning law. So Deuteronomy means second law. But see, it's not a new law. It's a new generation who will re receive the law. And this new generation going forward points to God's provision of grace. The redemption story continues. Now, before we close in prayer, I want to issue you a challenge. I want to ask you to take a look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to attest and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Here's the challenge. I'm going to ask you to read this passage as part of your daily devotion until you have it memorized. I'm not going to ask you to work on the memorization. I'm going to ask you to read it to the point where you no longer have to open your Bible to say these verses. We've just looked at the Old Testament sacrificial system. We just talked about the sacrifice of Jesus. I think it is remarkable that we can offer ourselves back to God. And that's what these verses talk about. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, God withholds what we deserve because Jesus took the wrath due us for us. And remember, this is that big word, propitiation. This is mercy. To offer your bodies, meaning our whole selves, as living sacrifices. We can be holy and pleasing to God. Why are we holy? We're holy because Jesus paid the ransom to free us from our guilt. Expiation. Remember, redemption requires payment. This is our spiritual act of worship. It continues. Do not conform or any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Every one of you are doing this just by being in this room. 
You read scripture, you study scripture, you pray, you come to church, you are transforming that mind. And why do we do this? So that we can discern God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, what Jesus did for us physically, we can respond to him in this perfect spiritual worship. So let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have provided for us because of your great love, grace, and mercy. We desire to know you and then obey your will as our act of gratitude to you and our worship of you. Thank you that this story continues. And since we are your people, it is our story too. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.